Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you've spent time on a small island recently, I bet sea level rise and climate change crossed your mind. And that's our topic for today. And stick around after the interview for something uplifting. Cynthia DiRocco is back with Science for the Win. A month ago, I made my tropical getaway dreams a reality and took a trip to Dominica, a mountainous island nation in the Caribbean, where I hiked and snorkeled almost every day. It was warm, my back pain was gone, and I was in full vacation mode. But as someone whose job is talking to scientists who care deeply about their research on current issues, it's hard for me to get climate change out of my mind, even on vacation. And on a sunny beach where the waves lapped at my feet, I couldn't stop thinking about sea level rise and how vulnerable Dominica is to the impacts of climate change. But not just Dominica. As the ocean becomes more acidic, extreme weather intensifies, and the line between the wet and dry season blurs, all island nations are hit extra hard. But those are just my beachside musings. I wanted to hear the analysis of an expert, and who better to talk to than Dr. Kim Waddell, a biologist and the director of a grant from the National Science Foundation awarded to the University of the Virgin Islands. He's working on the front lines of hazard preparation, and he's mentoring the next generation of scientists on St. Thomas. Kim is a board member of the Union of Concerned Scientists and explains why responding to climate change is especially challenging for island nations and what solutions are out there. He talks about research and restoration plans for what's known as blue infrastructure, which encompasses all the water elements of the landscape, like rivers, ponds, and wetlands. And he gives us a glimpse into the mind of a scientist living in the U.S. Virgin Islands when both Hurricane Irma and Maria hit in 2017. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. We've talked about climate change um, and sea level rise on the podcast in the past, and we know that many island nations are going to be hit hardest, and unfortunately, some may even disappear. What are some of the climate challenges that are specific to island nations? There's quite a few. Uh, a lot of it depends on the topography and longitude, latitude, things like that. In the Caribbean, we're in the Hurricane Alley. Uh, storms come across from the coast of Africa across the Atlantic, they often swing through the Caribbean and then up into potentially into the Central America, Gulf of Mexico and so forth. And uh, we've seen that the intensity of these storms because of sea surface temperatures being you know, considerably higher or rising in general, uh, we see the intensification of these storms happening in rather short amount, short amount of time. It's not a you know, it'll be a cat category one, category two type storm for quite a ways and all of a sudden intensify in the last 48 hours. And so we saw that with Irma and Maria in 2017, that they intensified rather quickly. So that's one, one factor. The other are more nuanced, relatively speaking. I think we see droughts and then 
heavy rain events that are rather random, you know, just as we've seen random temperatures across the Northeast, for example, warm temperatures in the middle of January or February, and we see the same thing. But when you tie it to rainfall, uh, again, depending on the topography of the islands, uh, you can get these six, eight inch rainfalls randomly. and. Um, they're very intense and cause local uh, coastal flooding, and that's where most, most of the folks live. And so that coral disease is up because of the stress of higher temperatures, whether it's bleaching or just new diseases that haven't been characterized before. Things like that are all a result of climate change. And so that affects fisheries, it affects our tourism product, it affects um, just the uh, livability of some of these places. Uh, so. Well, I was recently in Dominica, where very mountainous, possibly the tallest mountains in in the islands. In the Lesser Antilles. In the Lesser Antilles. Right. Right. Just being there, there would be just periodic real downpours happening kind of at different times during the day. And I was talking to a few people about the wet season and the dry season, which seem to now the lines are blurred. blurred. And I was imagining, because there's so many waterfalls, and I'm just imagining when all that rain comes down, it's just washing down the mountain. It's, I mean, where where does it go? It must, I mean, it's falling into the ocean, but it must be causing great damage to where people are living, which is very close to the coast, I would imagine. Well, it, it varies. I mean, if it was a perfectly uh, vegetated, normal ecosystem, then I think the, the leaves, the branches, the trees themselves, or the shrubs, they soften the impact of the rainfall. And between that and the soils, I mean, and that's the other factor, is the type of soils that these islands might have. Usually, uh, the topsoils are fairly shallow, but by the leaves buffering the rainfall, I mean, they still have a chance to absorb. They will, gravi- gravity will take them into, you know, ravines or as we call them in the Virgin Islands, guts, and they'll flow out. And there's enough things breaking up the flow of water to ideally lessen the impact by the time it gets to uh, the coastlines. What we see now with development is that you have impervious surfaces, roads and rooftops and so forth. And the roads in particular really accelerate because there's nothing you know, blocking them. And so I've seen, you know, <laughs> you'll see uh, a standing foot of water at the bottom of a hill that's just rushing down uh, because there's absolutely nothing slowing it. It's, it's uh, like the superhighway right, for exactly, water. Right, exactly, exactly. And so those are the kind of things along with debris, you know, whether it's uh, waste, plastics, sediments from unprotected uh, soils or development. Uh, There's a lot of things that get into these streams, creeks, rivers, and if that's not filtered by Mother Nature, one of the ecosystem services that we we seem to underappreciate, you will see a lot of sediment getting out there. Now, you know, in some systems like the Mississippi, those sediments serve a purpose. They basically provision and replace lost erosion from waves scouring the, the coastline. But in the, in the Caribbean, you have mangroves uh, primarily as the sort of the wetlands uh, counterpart. And they have been removed primarily for development and people want resorts or piers and docks for yachts and what have you. And there's just not a lot of filtering going on. And so you get the sediments out into uh, the open water and those impact the coral reefs and the shallow water ecosystems, whether it's seagrasses or what have you. So there's a, a lot of damage potentially uh, with you know, unprotected wetlands. 
You were there in St. Thomas when both Irma hit and then two weeks later, Maria. Can you tell me what what was it like? What How much warning did you have? What, what did you do? Well, uh, you know, Noah and the other weather services were pretty good in warning us. I mean, you see these tracks literally off the coast of Africa. So you, sometimes you'll know that there's a storm building in, in the Atlantic, and it might be, depending on the speed, it could be a week, it could be 10 days. Once they get into, you know, within a few hundred miles of the Lesser Antilles, then you start paying attention because if, if they've been gaining strength, for example, I mean, Irma was the strongest Atlantic storm in recorded history. And that doesn't mean it was the strongest storm. It's just, you know, in the last few hundred years, it was the strongest one we'd ever seen. So we knew that was going to be a dangerous storm. And as it, and it proved to be so uh, when it hit Dominica, Barbuda, and then worked its way north uh, towards us, we knew we were in trouble. And that point, 48 hours, people are scouring, the, buying groceries, batteries, things like that to prepare. But frankly, by that point, there's not a lot of things left on the shelf. And whether you're buying plywood to protect your windows or what have you, it was a, a mad ra- rush at the end. Anyway, once the storm hit, then you have this terrifying, you know, 12, 14-hour nightmare of just roaring winds and... Yeah, it was, uh, it was, I've been through seven, eight hurricanes and never a Category 5, and it sort of redefined what I thought storms could be. And I've, I can check it off my bucket list. I don't want to see one, <laughs> one of those again. So It's hard to imagine. I live in the Northeast, in the Boston area. We have nor'easters. I live on the ocean. And to me, those can be terrifying. And I, we get probably... 80 mile an hour wind gusts, or maybe 90, but you're talking about 200 mile per hour winds. Yes, uh, it's, um, I've been through category one storms, 75, 85, 90 miles an hour, and I mean, it's loud, it's uh, frightening, you certainly can't be outside. This is another uh, altogether exper- different experience. Uh, it's deafening roar. I had a couple of windows that were facing a hillside, so um, I didn't have them boarded up. And I just watched this island get defoliated. I mean, com- every leaf, every branch, every palm frond just stripped away. And you went from a lush green tropical forest to Vermont in February, you know, I mean, with, you know, in a deciduous forest. I mean, there was just nothing left and uh, watching the water, I mean, roiling you know, oceans, but then you saw the sediment plumes as the, the rainfall just washed all, all the soil and leaf litter out into the ocean two miles offshore, these giant greenish-brown plumes full of biomatter, you know, tiny little chunks of leaf and a lot of dirt all just going out. And, and so soil. there's the scientist. Right. You're, right. I, I'm thinking that you're probably maybe fearing for your life that your, oh, your yeah. house will fall down, but, but the scientist in you is also thinking, look at all that sediment go. Well, there is that. I mean, I, I, was, I was in a very uh, solid, reinforced concrete home. I was in the middle floor, so there was my, you know, the roof wasn't even over my house, it was over my landlord's house, and then there was a, a smaller studio unit below me. And so I felt pretty protected, and I knew that this house had been built and uh, survived Maryland and Hugo back in 89 and 96. I was looking at a recent poll in the Washington Post did with the Kaiser Family Foundation 
that found that 79% of respondents said that human activity is driving global warming, and roughly half agreed that urgent action is needed. After these storms, how do islanders view climate change? Hurricanes have been part of all human experience, at least in the Caribbean, whether it's the the native Caribbean uh, peoples, the Arawak or the Carib Indians or what have you. They saw hurricanes, uh, the Spanish, the Dutch, the French, English, et cetera, et cetera, all experienced hurricanes. So it's, it's not out of the norm. What people are starting to realize is this intensity. Uh, the frequency may not change, though it appears to be more frequent that we get stronger storms, but it's, it's a little too early to tell that for sure. I think what happens after storms is you get this heightened awareness and sensitivity, and that's a real opportunity for scientists and policymakers to try and implement, whether it's hazard mitigation strategies or hurricane preparedness strategies, just for example, after the flurry of uh, earthquakes off of the south coast of Puerto Rico, earthquake preparedness, having an earthquake kit. These are the kind of events that get people to think about them and perhaps take that extra step to prepare and anticipate. I think the long view, as far as understanding climate change, I think it's a mixed bag. I think people are more open to it. I mean, certainly among those folks with a little bit of education, I think they've heard about it. They have no reason to question it or doubt it. And I think when you point to the intensity of these storms and you say this is probably tied to climate change, they get it. They also get it with the sea surface temperature. The water is warmer and uh, when the weather they go to the beach or what have you. So I think they're seeing the signs. But do they see that it's an anthropogenic effect? That's a little more sophisticated question, but I think they're aware of climate change and certainly the low-lying islands like Anguilla, they have serious concerns and they're much more aware because they have very little room, frankly, to, um, to adjust. How about consensus among, the, among government officials? I think most government officials under, you know, get it, they're aware of it. Do they have the tools to do something about it? That's a different story. I think that's the challenge, is the, the capability and capacity to address these challenges on such a small scale when the problem and, problem and the source of those problems come out from elsewhere. You know, I mean, this is a China, United States, Europe-generated problem, and we are just the little guys that are catching the immediate impacts. And I think there's a, not a sense of helplessness, but we realize that we're not driving it. It's not our use of you know, cars or, or power plants that are driving this phenomena. This is a global responsibility. And we know from the comments uh, you know, in the United Nations from a lot of small island developing states that they, they see that they have a limited role and they just want to be the ones that are raising awareness with the big powers that, hey, what you're doing or not doing affects us. And I think that's how I think a lot of the folks in the Caribbean see it. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. 
If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and on your social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. You're the director of a grant from the National Science Foundation to address the implications of climate change on insular social ecological systems or small islands. You're focused primarily on hurricane impacts and coral reefs. Tell me about some of the work that your students are doing. Well, sure. This uh, this is a large grant, uh, $20 million, five-year opportunity for which for a small university like ours, um, that's a a staggering opportunity uh, and responsibility. And we have three components. We are looking at coral reefs because they are endangered species. There are uh, important or critical fisheries habitat, and they're iconic. I mean, when people think of the Caribbean, uh, they think of coral reefs. And so there's a lot of support from federal agencies like NOAA or EPA. The Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico are home to a sizable proportion of the coral reefs in the United States. And so it's a great place to learn and understand them. They're the the healthiest in the tropics. And we've been monitoring them for 20 years or so. So we wanted to take advantage of, we had a body of scientific work published literature in this particular area. And so we focused on that, and we're currently looking at disease dynamics and demographics of corals. And the idea is to understand what are the elements or or variables in the coral ecosystem that protect them from these anthropogenic challenges or just the the climate change and as well as just normal fluctuations in ecosystems. So we've been doing that for probably 15 years with this current grant. But the, the, the fundamental emphasis behind the EPSCOR, which is the established program to stimulate competitive research, is to build capacity in regions of the United States that don't get a sizable chunk of uh, National Science Foundation funding you know, for research. The real goal here is to develop students of all ages, but primarily college and graduate students, to get into the STEM fields and join the workforce and diversify the economy, but stimulate research investment, whether it's from the private sector or public sector. And the idea is over time that you become more competitive and it bolsters the economy, it bolsters quality of life because you have a diverse workforce, et cetera, et cetera. We focused on the marine ecosystem again because that's sort of our bread and butter for our tourism industry as well. But more recently, we're looking at how to prepare that workforce for the challenges that we were just talking about, climate change and so forth. So do you focus on blue infrastructure at all? Are are you, as you're doing research on coral reefs, is there any way to do sort of coral reef reconstruction or help? Yes. uh, I mean, I think that's where our next grant will really focus on. Uh, I think coral conservation practices, while... uh, it's a really good idea, and, and you know, if we can do things to conserve the health of our coral ecosystems, that would be great. But the fact is, the rate of change, whether it's from climate change or the rate of deterioration from 
uh, runoff from land and sediment plumes and introduction of diseases, et cetera, et cetera. We can't keep pace, and we can't assume that this ecosystem can keep pace with the, the number and frequency of these stressors. So now we're into re restoration practices. We're interested in coral restoration, and historically we've focused on fast-growing corals that are, that are amenable to transplanting and things like that, and it's sort of like trying to rebuild a forest using the fast-growing tree species or weeds. And that's all well and good, and they'll serve a purpose, but if you want to really focus on the larger ecosystem, you also have to try and focus on the biodiversity of corals, because different corals are vulnerable to different things, just as different mammals are to different diseases uh, or stressors. So the idea is we have to think more holistically uh, as we uh, rebuild these ecosystems, and I, that's frankly a almost arrogant of us to think that we can rebuild it. It's not an engineering. I mean, we might think we can engineer these things. So we're in the early stages of um, recovery, uh, conservation, and selecting varieties and, and populations of corals to rebuild these reefs. I suppose um, climate change is one of the major drivers of what's happening in oceans with warming and right. coral bleaching, so. It's a race against time, not in the sort of traditional sense, because we know systems change. What we are not adapting to is the rate of change. As we think about recovery and or, for example, mangroves, I mean, I think this week, or in the next couple of months in St. Thomas and St. Croix and St. John, we have a great mangrove cleanup. You know, where first thing you do is take the garbage out, get rid of the garbage that's fouling these incredibly important ecosystems, and then reduce the the toxins that might that are coming off the land into these systems and and giving them a chance. I think the we are developing methods to replant mangroves, but we have to be cognizant, they're a relatively slow-growing species. There's some varieties and genotypes that are more prone or less prone to successful seedling, act, being successful as seedlings. So I, I think we have to do a little bit of selection process, scientific experimentation to figure out which varieties are more vigorous, under what conditions. There's a lot of variation in, in you know, it's just like being a farmer. A variety of corn here works great, but you know, 100 miles away, it's a different variety that's going to be effective. So we have to do some of the, that genetics, uh, genetics and environment experimentation to understand what's going to do well where and under what conditions. And so that requires some basic biology as well as uh, plant breeding in, in, in this particular instance. But it's the same with, you know, we're looking at seagrasses. And one of the challenges we have with seagrasses is that we have invasive species and invasives that may do many of the same things that the native species does, but it changes the availability of habitat or food quality for the endemic species that live in, in these seagrass beds. And so we need to understand those kind of things. You know, we have to look at what are the consequences of these kind of changes in species composition uh, and how things do. And then over time, I think uh, the better we understand the inputs, the outputs, uh, then I think we get to that predictive ability of like, well, if we do this and this and this, there's a higher likelihood that this will succeed and, and sustain itself over time. And that's ultimately where we want to get to. 
There's a really interesting thing that um, one of the scuba diving uh, places in Dominica is doing. And when they go out diving, they uh, they catch lionfish, which are an invasive right. species, and they bring them back, and then they serve them for lunch. And it's quite a delicious sandwich. I know. I, we, we do the same thing in, in the Virgin Islands. Um, yeah, I think that's a great... Uh, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, we've, we've been arguing for even creating a bit of a, a bounty at, you know, in the St. Thomas or in the Virgin Islands, fish generically are about $7 a pound, regardless of what they are, uh, what species or variety they are. Uh, but if you are for, you know, eight bucks or nine bucks a pound for lionfish, then people would be selectively harvesting them. Well, Kim, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you again. And now it's time for Science for the Win with Cynthia Duraco. Thanks, Colleen. One thing I love about working at the Union of Concerned Scientists, a.k.a. UCS, is our abbreviations. The UCS acronym I love most, that's CEMO, which stands for Clean Energy Momentum. C-E, Clean Energy, Mo, Momentum. CEMO. When we say CEMO, we mean that clean, renewable energy is spreading across the United States. It's not just fun to say, it's good news. And it's not just good news, it's quantifiable good news. The U.S. Department of Energy, that's DOE, releases data each year about projections they get from power plant developers and operators. What are they planning to build over the next year or two? How many new power plants are coming online? How will they generate power? 2020's latest data says they're finding SEMO. Sorry, had to. The projections from the DOE suggest that renewable energy will account for 80% of new generating capacity that will be installed in the U.S. this year. Solar and wind seem set to break records. Here are some of the exciting numbers. The new wind power projections would represent a 17% increase in our wind capacity. That would provide enough capacity to generate the equivalent of an additional 6 to 7 million U.S. households' electricity use. When it comes to solar power, the new capacity projected would be a 30% overall increase over what we have now. That's enough to generate electricity for the equivalent of another few million U.S. households. Even as all that new capacity is getting onto the grid this year, U.S. renewable energy is still projected to be 11% higher than it was in 2019. And when these projections play out, when all this new renewable capacity is actually on the grid, These numbers suggest that the total renewable energy generation in the U.S. will pass 20% in 2020. More than one-fifth of the U.S. electricity generation will be from renewables. That's double the amount they provided 10 years ago. And all of this growth is despite an administration that has been openly hostile to wind and solar. What I take away from these numbers is that the market just prefers renewable energy. It's cheaper to produce, and that makes it unstoppable. That's some real SEMO, and it's good news for all of us who know that we have to stop relying on burning fossil fuels for our electricity. I'm Cynthia DiRocco, and this has been Science for the Win. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, 
The 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Kim Waddell. Science for the Win was brought to you by Cynthia Duraco. Editing by Omari Spears. Music and additional editing by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.